Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get started today going through this, I want to take a moment to, uh, because as you read, we're, we're talking about warfare in a, in a spiritual way in our Christian lives. But there's a real war going on right now as well. Um, not that our, our spiritual war isn't real, but there's an additional war going on. And I want to take a moment to pray for the situation in Ukraine. And the way that I actually want us to pray for this is a little unique. Because earlier this week, I found a video uh, that the American Bible Society released of Ukrainians praying through Psalm 31. And if you've been here for a little while, you know I'm, I'm a big fan of praying through the Psalms, opening the Psalms and letting them guide your prayers. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to watch this video together. And as we watch our brothers and sisters praying these powerful words from weak positions as they're sheltered in place in basements and in subway stations and in and in bomb shelters, may our hearts be joined with them, and may the Lord bring them strength and perseverance. So let's, let's watch this together and pray together. Стань для мене могутньою скелою, дом твердині, щоб спасти мене. Я зненавидів всіх, хто шанує повбаних мертвих. Я ж надіюсь на Господа. Я буду радіти та тішитись в Твоїй милості, що побачив Ти горе біє, що приглянувся Ти до скорботи моєї душі. І мене не віддав в руку ворога. На місці розлоги поставив Ти ноги мої. Помилив мене, Господи, потісно мені. Від горя вже виснажилось у моєму моє. Душа моя і нутро моє. Бо скінчилось життя моє в смутку, а роки мої у квилінні. Моя сила спіткнулася через мій гріх, і виснажились мої кості. Я в усіх ворогів своїх став посміховищем, надто сусідом своїм. І страхіттям знайомим моїм, хто бачить на дворі мене, утікають від мене. Я забутий у серці, немов той небіжник, став я немов та розбита посудина. Бо чую багато шептання, страхання навколо, як змовляються разом на мене. 
Вони замишляють забрати мою душу. А я покладаю надію на тебе. О, Господи, я кажу, ти мій Бог. В твою руку кладу свою долю. Ти ж визволь мене від руки ворогів моїх і моїх переслідників. Засяй світлом свого обличчя на твого раба. Спаси мене у своєму милосерді. Господи, не дай мені осоромитись, адже я кличу до тебе. Нехай осоромляться нечестиві і змовкнуть у шоолі. Нехай заніміють обманливі уста, які зухвало зі зневагою, наговорюють на праведника. Яка ж велика твоя доброта, яку ти приготував для тих, що тебе шанують та на тебе покладаються і виявляєш її перед усіма людськими нащадками. Ти їх у заслоні обличчя свого заховаєш від людських тенет. Ти їх від лихих язиків у наметі сховаєш. Благословений Господь, що вчинив мені милість чудову свою в оборонному місці. А я говорив у своїм побентеженні. Я відрізаний перед очей твоїх. Та дійсно, ти вислухав голос благання мого, коли я до тебе взивав. Любіть Господа, усі святі Його. Стереже Господь вірний, а гордому злишком відплачує. Будьте сильні, і хай буде міцне ваше серце. Усі, хто надію покладає на Господа. Псалом 31. You know, I've prayed that prayer. At least a hundred times I've prayed through Psalm 31. And when I saw that video, it just opened it up anew. Because while I've prayed it, I have allegorized it to my life so many times. Um, but then when you see people who really do need refuge, who can resonate with a psalm writer, who is hiding from someone who is seeking to, to take them out, comes in a different kind of way for us. So let's pray together, church. We pray that you will guard our brothers and sisters and the entire Ukrainian people. We pray that uh, you will guard them. Uh, God, we pray that they might seek their hope in you and that they might see you new. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One thing I don't want to do this morning is to make light of the situation in Ukraine whatsoever. But the situation in Ukraine does remind us of war. And it does remind us and help us, give us a good point to think about our text today. As we look at the war that we fight as Christians. Our homes aren't being invaded by Russians, but our hearts are constantly attacked by the evil one. Today, as we turn our attention to this passage Paul starts with the word that all those who are listening to a sermon long to hear. And he says, finally, you're coming to the end. And he starts his conclusion. We only have two weeks left in Ephesians uh, before we do a, a quick three-week series on Luke 24 uh, with the resurrection, exploring the resurrection. We'll be doing James all summer, Genesis in the fall. Uh, Genesis will be great. After Genesis, we'll probably have something else. I'm not sure what will go in there, but then John is coming 2023, and that will take a long time as well. So we're going to be hitting a gospel, the whole story of Jesus once we get there next year, but then we're, before, between now and then, it's going to be James and Genesis. 
but we still have to finish up Ephesians, and God has a word for us today. So Paul starts off, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. When we read this first passage here, we actually see that Paul is repeating a word over and over again. And when you see a word repeated in a short time frame over and over again, you need to look and see what he's trying to emphasize in that passage with that word. And the word that he keeps saying over and over again is stand. He says it four times in two verses. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 13, he says it again, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are facing today, whatever you are going through, whether that be lows or highs, whether that be anxiety or joys, stand firm. Stand firm because our Lord, He is a rock and He cares for you and He will care for you and He will see you to the end. Friends, the Christian life, it is a war. We are attacked. Our enemy is trying to bring us down. And so Paul tells us to stand firm. I love the way that the great former preacher, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord now, James Montgomery Boyce says this. Because what he says is many Christians would not see Christianity as an entrance into warfare, but as an exit away from it. They see it as a solution to our problems. If you are sick, Jesus will make you well. If you are discouraged, Jesus will make you happy. Friends, if that's how Christianity was sold to you, I'm sorry because you did not get the real Christianity. The real Christianity is not an exit out of difficult times. It's often an entrance into difficult times because the way you need to think about it is like this. Satan does not care if you are happy or if you are sad. He just does not want you to be near to God. He just does not want you to take delight in who God is. Satan does not care if your life is going well or if it's going poorly. He just wants you to be living for you. And if your life going well makes you live more for you, he is happy to give you that. Look at how he tempts Jesus. What does he say to Jesus? He doesn't say, Jesus, I'm going to make your life terrible. What does he do? He brings Jesus to the highest point in the city and says, Jesus, I will give it all to you. All you have to do is bow your knee to me. Friends, has Satan made a similar promise with you and said, I'll give you the good life. Just live for yourself. You see, the the entrance into Christianity is an entrance into a posture of war where we want to be brought away from God, carried away from the place where we belong, carried away from our homeland. You know, the the Christian battle looks a lot like the battle in Ukraine right now. Where we're just called to stand firm. We're not called to go out there and invade enemy lands. We're called to stand firm, to withstand the day 
when our enemy has come. Our enemy has crossed the border. Instead of tanks and missiles, our enemy, he fights with depression and temptations. Our enemy, he fights with pride and lust and greed. Our enemy, he fights with discouragement and anxiety. Friends, this is an enemy that you cannot handle alone, much like Ukraine. We need the help of our ally. We need someone to help us to stand firm. We would never make it on our own. And we know, much like Ukraine, that making friends with the enemy is not the way to victory. Because when you make friends with the enemy, he just wants more. When you give up a little bit, he just wants more. He's going to come knocking again. Stand firm, church. Stand firm, not by yourself, but with the power of God. Because he is with you. Because he stands with you. How do we stand firm, though, in a world that feels bent against us? The world wants us to live for us. It has a saying, YOLO, you only live once. That's so anti-Christian, is it not? Have you thought about that? But that is oftentimes our mentality, that we only live once. How do we stand firm? Three things. First, you need to know who your enemy is. Second, you need to understand your enemy's tactics. And third, you need to take up arms. Who is your enemy? How does he fight? And take up arms. Let's dive in. Who is our enemy? Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of who? Of the devil. Now, if you're new to Christianity here today, or you are going through a time where you're deconstructing your faith or examining your faith, you might say, the devil? (laughs) Am I supposed to believe in that? You mean the little red guy with the horns and the tail and the forked tongue and the red spandex and the, and the pitchfork, that guy? That's my enemy? Belief in God is one thing, but when you want me to believe in a little red man, that's too far. And we could talk about this for a long time, but I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller puts this. Because he says, if you struggle with believing in a personal devil, consider that you might be culturally narrow because white western people have a lot of trouble believing in the devil but that's not true of most of the world africa latin america asia have no trouble believing in spirits and demons and things like that so that might be one aspect to consider as you doubt the existence of the devil and it may actually help you a little bit to look at what the bible teaches about the devil because spandex is not a fabric in the scripture. And if it was, I'm sure it would be outlawed in Leviticus. <laughs> you shouldn't be wearing that. That's not biblical, that's just Fletcher, all right? <laughs> what does the Bible say about the devil? He's described in many different ways. He doesn't show up like a cartoon, but he does show up as a snake. He does show up as a serpent. He does show up as a scorpion. He does show up as a dragon. He's described in a variety of different ways in the scripture. He's known by different names. He's the ruler 
of the authority of the air. He is the enemy or the father of lies or the God of this age. Did you know he's never actually given a proper name throughout all the scripture? Lucifer does not appear and Satan is not a proper name. Satan, the word Satan, when that shows up, what that means is the adversary. And when devil shows up, what that means is the liar or the accuser or the slanderer. We have an enemy, a spiritual force, and his job is to pull the world back into chaos and decay. When the world started, God created order. But because of sin, the evil one is trying to pull it back into chaos. He's trying to pull the darkness back in. Verse 12 explains this a little bit more with who our enemy is. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If we were writing this, this is not how we would write this. Because Paul's repeating a word again, over and over again. If I, if I was an English teacher, I would say, Paul, that's not very good English. Good thing you were writing in Greek, right? But that's not how I, we would write it. He's wanting to emphasize that we were against this, that we wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces. And here's what he's saying. That all the evil that you see in the world, the war, the poverty, the starvation, the evil things that you and I recognize, there's an evil behind the evil. That there's an evil behind the evil. That he is the ruler of the power of the air. That he is the ruler and the authority. When we look at the situation in Ukraine, what is the problem there? Is it a political problem? Is it just an army problem? A, a, a weapons manufacturer problem? No. The problem is that there's an evil behind the evil. We might even say Putin is the evil. But what is the evil there? There's pride in that man's heart. There's an ego. You see, he's the father of lies. He whispers that you can have what you want today. Friends, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual evil, against an enemy who wants to bring us down. Who is your enemy? It's this evil one. This is why, this is why Jesus didn't come and start a revolution the way that his disciples wanted him to. You know, when Jesus walked the face of the earth, his disciples wanted him to go and take the throne, to be king of Israel. They wanted him to be a great king like David was a king. But Jesus knew that the ultimate enemy was not Rome, who was the conqueror of that day. But the ultimate enemy was an invisible enemy, was an evil that lived behind all of the evil that they experienced that day. So Jesus did not want to go and take a physical throne. Instead, he took a spiritual throne. Instead, his throne was found on a cross where the real enemy was the defeated, where light shines through, where he took on the darkness. He who knew no sin became sin for us, we prayed this morning so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knows who his enemy is. That's why he's not going the physical, political route. 
He's going this spiritual, sacrificial, loving, his enemies kind of route. So we need to know who our enemy is, but we also need to know our enemy's tactics if we have any chance of standing firm against him. Our enemy's tactics, how does he attack us? Verse 11 again, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the liar, the accuser, the slanderer. How does he attack us? He uses schemes. He uses lies. Now, here's the way we normally think about attacks from the evil one. When I, I've been a Christian for a long time, and so I've heard people talk about what we might call spiritual warfare in the church, even though that phrase doesn't exist in the Bible. But we, we talk about being attacked from the evil one. And here's how I normally hear people say it. It's the Satan's behind my bad day technique. It's, oh, I woke up late. I fought with my wife. There was no breakfast. I got in my car. It wouldn't start. I called AAA. It took them 30 minutes. I was late for an interview. I didn't get the job. And then on my way home, the hailstorm came down and put dents in my car. I think Satan's after me. And that's the way we normally think about spiritual attack. But how about this one? Let's say you wake up on time. You receive a kiss and maybe someone has breakfast, loves you so much, already has breakfast for them. Maybe your husband's already made breakfast for you that day. You get in the car, you get the job. It's a sunny day on the way home, 60 degrees. You roll down the windows and listen to some music. Could that be spiritual attack? Because Satan does not care if you are happy, healthy, sad, depressed, as long as you're living for yourself. You see, Satan, he doesn't work with physical weapons. He works in the spiritual realm, and he works through what we call temptation. Oftentimes, when we experience that first example, we will be tempted. Woe is me. That can be spiritual attack. Woe is me. I deserve to just let loose, spend for myself, watch a movie for myself, whatever. But on the other side, we could also experience temptation. I am awesome. I'm the best. Pride, it comes at us. We have to stand firm against the evil one's attacks, which come in the form of temptation. He has these schemes. He's wanting to draw us away from God, whether through good things or bad. He doesn't care if he has to use discouragement or euphoria, whatever he can get to get you to live for yourself and not for God. The, the lies, the whispers of the liar say, this life is all that there is. You need to take advantage of every moment for yourself. Don't worry about what others think. Don't worry about God. Don't think about the repercussions. Spend for yourself, live for yourself, achieve, advance, win. You're all by yourself. Live for yourself. This is the es essence of Satanism. I love how Thomas Brooks, who's an old Puritan, 
I love how he, he put this. He has this book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and he shares several tactics. And I'm just going to share some of the tactics of the evil one, and I can guarantee you that you've experienced many of these tactics. Here are some of his tactics, some of his schemes that he uses to attack. First one, I'm just going to share a few. He's got like a ton, but I'm just going to share a few. He, he shows you the bait and hides the hook. He says, short-term success, long-term destruction. Don't look at that. Live for the short-term success, the short-term pleasure. He helps you rationalize sin as virtue. I'm not greedy, I'm just thrifty. I'm not a, a gossip, I'm just concerned. He shows you the sins of Christian leaders and mentors. He lets you watch my life a little bit too carefully and says, he did it, why can't I? He overstresses the mercy of God and says, God will forgive you. Just do it. He makes us bitter over suffering. I suffered. I deserve this. He shows us how well-off bad people have it good. It doesn't pay off to follow the rules, to follow God. I'm just going to do whatever. Look at that. Where he segments your life. He's, he, you might say, I'm, I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. I'm a, I'm a good employee. Who cares if I got this part of my life off? William Gurnell, another Puritan. Sorry, it's a heavy Puritan sermon this week. Puritans are great, okay? Uh, not all of them. Some of them were bad. Um, especially some of the ones that lived around here, you know, chasing, chasing witches and that sort of thing. Not, not our favorite always, but they have some good writings. Um, William Garnell, he wrote a book, The Christian in Complete Armor, and I actually bought two copies. They're up in my office. I meant to bring them down and just hand them to people right now, but if you want a copy, I'd love to give it to you because it's a great book. Um, he shares other tactics that the evil one might use. I was reading this this morning just for a little devotional time because as I started to read the book, I was like, oh, this is good. I'm going to read this. So I just was reading this personally. And he said these things. He says, Satan will downplay your sin when the Spirit convicts you. You might say to yourself, it's only a little sin. I'll spare it. Or he'll bribe the soul with a vow of secrecy. So sin says, you can keep me and your good reputation too. You may shut me up in the attic of your heart, out of sight, if only you will let me now and then have the wild embraces of your thoughts and affections in secret. Our enemy has schemes. He has tactics that he uses against us. They're tricky and they're hard to defeat. And friends, I... I'm going to put this really clearly. You have no hope against them among your own devices. You will be defeated over and over and over again. So what can we do? You will give in to sin. What can we do? And Paul says stand firm, but he doesn't say stand firm by yourself and your own strength. The temptation here, when Paul says stand firm, is to stand up tall. Maybe we've got like a homemade Iron Man suit. Put that on and, and try to go after our enemy. Maybe, maybe the temptation is to make a Molotov cocktail ourselves to fight against the evil one. 
But what God's saying is you don't have to do that. You've got anti-tank ammunition in the closet just gathering dust. You don't have to make a homemade Iron Man suit. You've got Thor on your side, right? He's saying, I don't know, I'm making stuff up right now. That's, <laughs> Michael gave me a look like, no, that's not good. Okay. Um, yeah, but no, you, you've, got, you've got the armor of God is what he says. Let's talk about what it means to wear the armor of God. First, what doesn't it mean? This is take up arms. The third thing that we got to do is stand firm. Take up arms. What, is it, what does it not mean to have the armor of God? A lot of times when we think about the armor of God, we think about this is how we can stand firm against temptation to live a moral life. So it means just following the rules. But again, we're not here to make religious people, but gospel people. And there's a lot of people out there who can follow the rules without the armor of God. You don't need the armor of God if your goal is just to follow the rules. What the armor of God does is it swaps the duty of following the rules to prove that God loves you into a delight. It swaps it from a duty into a delight to where following Jesus is not a chore, but it's a pleasure. The armor of God helps you withstand with the love of God. Our natural tendency is to live as if we don't need it. To to ask God to bless our efforts. I can stand up. I'm strong. That's not what it says. It says be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He doesn't tell you that you're good enough, you're strong enough, you can make it. He says, you have the Lord on your side. I love how Dane Ortland puts this, an author that we've oftentimes recommended. He says, when you have a Lamborghini engine under the hood, it's odd to try to get your car going like Fred Flintstone, using the power of your own legs on the ground. But is that not how we do it <laughs> so often, how we fight against him? Paul lists out six different pieces of the armor of God. And uh, let me be really clear. As he's listing the six pieces of the armor of God, he's not listing six techniques to fight against Satan. These are all just facets of the same thing. They're like different angles of the diamond that we're looking at. And basically what it's saying is, be strong in the Lord. (laughs) That you have the Lord on your side. And that the good news of the gospel, here are different ways to look at the gospel so that you can remember how to be strong and to stand firm in the Lord. To take up the armor of God means that you take the truth of the gospel and it has become so real to your heart that you have experienced the joy of the love and forgiveness of God so intimately, so often, so you've cherished it, that it has changed the way that you interact with temptation and with sin. That it changes your natural response to the evil one's attack because you are cared for by God. That is what the armor of God is for. So let's dive into it. First, he says, stand firm, therefore, standing, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. 
All right, if we if we were kids right now, I'd be making you stand up and like do the belt of truth. This one would be a little awkward though, because the the Greek words here doesn't say anything about a belt. It says gird up your loins. All right, so this is technically not even a part of the armor of God. What he's saying is, before you put on the armor, you've got you've got to tie up your your tunic. Um, so girding up your loins, they would take a a strap and bring it through here, and another one through here. And make it to where you could run, where you can attack, where you can fight. Before you put on the armor, you had to put on the belt of truth, which is that thing. (laughs) When we think about the belt of truth, we're reminded that Jesus is truth. And that the truth of his word guides us and protects us and helps us to stand firm. That the lies of the evil one stand no hope against the truth of Christ. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we're reminded of the righteousness of Christ. That we are not righteous on our own, but we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus. As the great hymn uh, before the throne says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to see him there who made an end to all of my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We have a breastplate of righteousness. So when he whispers into your ear, you're not good enough. You're not doing enough. You're not producing enough. You'll never make it. We remember the righteousness of Christ that covers us that he loves us. As for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, we're reminded that we're not always to keep this truth to ourselves, but we are given the readiness to share it with others. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, everywhere, and we're called, commanded to take it to everyone, everywhere, to share it with our friends. We're given the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now, in Roman world, there were two different types of shields that people would hold. There was a small shield um, that you would hold for hand-to-hand combat, and then there was a large shield that you would hold for uh, more distance combat. And with the large shield, it was like four and a half feet tall and two feet wide, and you would go forward with your fellow soldiers making a wall. You've seen this before. This is the type of shield he's talking about because this is the type of shield that's designed to extinguish the darts, to, to take on the bows and arrows. Unique things here. You don't use this shield by yourself. You have your brothers and sisters. You, you have to be bound together fighting against the lies of the evil one. Because as they're blocking arrows, as you're blocking arrows, your brothers and sisters are blocking the same arrows. He's not coming up with anything new. Nothing you're facing is something that no one has ever faced before. You need your brothers and sisters standing beside you, your fellow soldiers. It helps us to withstand the lies of the evil one. He tells us to put on the helmet of salvation. This reminds us that we've been saved. That we don't have to earn our salvation, but we've been given it. We don't have to perpetually work on this thing, but Jesus has accomplished it all. And 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, how does he respond? He responds with Scripture every time. He, he has it hidden in his heart. The Bible points us clearly to Jesus. Every passage of the Bible points us clearly to Jesus. And so as we study the Scriptures, it becomes something we become more skillful in. You know, all these other things, it really doesn't require very much skill to put on a breastplate. It doesn't require much skill to hold a shield, really. But the sword, as you become more skillful with the Word, the other things become actually less needed in some ways. Because you have them all to look at, but the skill of the sword can help us against the evil one's attacks. Friends, we're called to stand firm with the armor of God. We will persevere. Not for forever, though. Because we have a hero, and he's coming to return. He's coming back. He's already defeated the enemy. They're shooting with blanks at us. Their, enemy, their, their tactics, the evil one's tactics, they can't succeed, actually. Not unless we let them. Listen to this. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us and all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus, he snuck in behind enemy lines and he took out their most valuable weapon. He defeated death itself. He took out the nukes. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore because we have the full power of God on our side and our enemy's greatest weapon has been destroyed. Jesus took it on himself. He disarmed them, putting them out to open shame. So now death isn't even a weapon against us. We do not fear death because we have Christ on our side. He did not do it with a sword in his hand, but with nails in his hands. He took on death itself and he rose victorious. As we finish here, I'm going to finish with one more quote from William Garnell in the Christian in Complete Armor. He says this, Jesus lived and died for you. He will live and die with you. His mercy and tenderness to his soldiers is unmatched. Historians tell us that Trajan tore his own clothes to bind up his soldiers' wounds. The Bible tells us that Christ poured out his very blood as balm to heal the saints' wounds. His flesh was torn to bind them up. We're reminded each week as we participate in a communion meal that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, that he defeated the evil one on our behalf so that we can stand firm in the face of the evil one, in the face of his, his attacks. We can stand firm against temptation based upon what he has given to us. As we participate in this meal, let's remember what he has done for us. That we are not standing firm in our strength, but in his strength. Let's stand and let's pray as we respond to Christ. Father, I thank you for the good news. 
that the battle's over. Good news, the battle's over. That you stand in our corner. And though we might be attacked by someone who didn't get that good news, though we might face suffering in life, we might endure hardship, Father, you're on our side. God, we pray that you will minister to us today, that you'll be helping us to hear from you as we respond to you now in song and, in, and at the table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.